Hi everybody, welcome back to the first series of the Arkity podcast. If you've listened to the previous episode and are here for some more, thank you and welcome back. And if you're joining us for the first time, then welcome. I'm Paris, the founder of Arkity and the host of the Perspectives podcast. Arkity is a new platform created for the architecture and design industry to help connect all of those in it to knowledge, people and inspiration. Over the course of this series, I will be speaking to a number of different people across the industry and exploring how they approach networking and events in the context of their career and life's passions. Each represents some of the many different perspectives that we find throughout the industry, from race to youth to a more experienced point of view, event attendees and event providers, content creators and avant-garde designers who look to the future. Hopefully we can listen and learn from each other expanding our journeys as designers and creators and discover a better understanding of how networking in this industry can be transformed. Today we have a jam-packed episode with three black female designers, Nana Biyama Ufosu, Angeline Clark and Melissa Hanif, who I met during my tenure as a committee member in the Black Females in Architecture Network. This episode is rich and covers a lot of ground, so in order to get to it quickly, we're going to jump straight in. I'd like to welcome today Melissa Hanna, uh, Nana Biamofusu, and Angeline Clark, who are members of the Black Females in Architecture Network, who I've met on my journey uh, in architecture. I'm hoping this is going to be a really engaging and brilliant conversation this evening, um, and I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. So, uh, Melissa, maybe you'd like to start? Hello, uh, I'm Melissa. I currently work as a development coordinator at Brick by Brick Housing Developer, as well as um, Resolve uh, Design Collective. I studied architecture in Manchester. Um, I did both part one and part two in Manchester, and then part three at Westminster. <laughs> Tutors were a bit hit or miss, but it was a good place to study. Um, I qualified end of 2018 and then decided traditional architectural practice was not for me. <laughs> and I left. Um, I got made redundant when I first started my part three. Yeah. But then that first year, I just did my exams. Then I had to do my case study afterwards and had um, an extremely up and down experience in that practice, which kind of just reminded me how much I dislike traditional architectural practice. Because resolve is really you know on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to an architectural practice exactly and very much um rooted in in community um but it's interesting that you say that you you were looking for a different way to do architecture because i think angeline's probably the same and and um so angeline i think that might be a good segue into introducing yourself yeah sure uh i'm angeline um, I am the founder and director of Bearded Ladies, um, which is a design studio. Um, I guess educationally, um, I'm a part one. I, um, I graduated at Westminster. I'm halfway through a master's of research at uh, UCL, Bartlett, and I'm eyeing up Cambridge at the moment to kind of finish off bits of part two and part three very very confusing I am but um I have my own design studio I set that in 2009 uh, and I'm just about limping along um given this COVID experience (laughs) but we we are trading um yeah I'm transdisciplinary so I, I don't just do architecture I do um I do a lot of things um I've done some stage design interior design any kind of design at the moment i'm getting into um a lot of ux um type design at the moment um i would say that my specialism is is kind of in spatial analysis and that's why i've got a master's in and i use that as my esp um and i work with lots of brands lots of exciting brands and things um so it's really really different it's definitely non-traditional um a melting pot of design I mean one of the things when I first met you that fascinated me was just the way you approach everything it's just like you're like a pick and mix of all the different areas um and you seem to just enjoy all of it so much um yeah so Nana would you like to introduce yourself as well yeah Great, thank you so much for having me firstly. Um, my name is Nana Biamrafosu. Um, I am an architectural designer. 
I haven't qualified yet on the way. <laughs> um, hopefully early next year. Um, yeah, so I'm an architectural designer, researcher, writer, and tutor. I enjoy the different ways of practicing architecture. And so I describe myself in all four terms equally, because I think that all four terms are legitimate ways of practicing architecture, building architecture, researching architecture and kind of the cultural nuance and kind of cultural implications of architecture, writing about architecture and trying to diversify the voices of what is actually even written about in architecture. And then teaching, um, which is something I've been doing now for the last four years, um, which I really enjoy. Um, so I teach at Kingston um, University. Is it Studio 2.2, right? Yeah. One of the reasons uh, why I've asked the three of you in particular um, to join me this evening is that you know, you all have such different approaches to what is a very traditional, historic um, career path. And in your own ways, um, you know, Melissa challenges it through Resolve and you challenge it through your research and new architecture writers. And, and Angeline, you're, you know, creating a niche for yourself with, by saying, you know, these are the, the new things that are coming along that I can do for you. And I think that's what I find so amazing. So I really want to know where, where you guys get your inspiration from when you are getting the chance to design. Um, how do you go out into the world, which does have this uh, very male, white centric view um, and, and possibly has put up those barriers. And how do you then go out and find this amazing inspiration? I suppose I'm, for me, architecture was always a way of looking at just um, the real world. Um, and it sounds like a very mundane thing to say, but it just really is. And I remember um, in my third year, um, Jamie Faber gave a lecture at Kingston and he started the presentation with a quote from Ludwig Wittgenstein, the um, philosopher who also practiced as an architect for a very short time. And the quote, um, to paraphrase badly said something like um studying architecture is a bit like studying philosophy it's, a, it's about questioning how one sees the world and what one expects of themselves in that relation to seeing the world and for me like that really changed how I thought about architecture to answer your question um directly I am interested in the everyday in recent years, what I'm realizing is that that every day that architects like to explore is very, um, it's quite racialized actually. And it's not necessarily inclusive of um, the everyday experiences of non-white people. Yeah. And so I, that's, I guess that's why I'm really interested in the everyday that matters to culture and the cultural productions of non-white people. People are very ignorant to the fact that there's anything other than what they see on a day-to-day -day basis. And when I say they, I mean, I, I do mean the, the majority of the industry, which is, you know, white people, to be honest. Um, I think, Melissa, do you, do you kind of find a similar thing when it comes to your inspirations? Are you looking, you know, at your daily life? Because I know brick by brick, they're kind of based in the local council. Well, at Brick by Brick, I'm not designing, so um, I'll put that out there. Um, so I'm on the delivery team, so it's more assisting the, the development managers with the um, development of the site. So it's more project management than designing. Um, with Resolve, you, you, you... Yeah, with Resolve, there'll be more inspiration for design. Um, and I think for me, I'm interest, I have so many interests um, within and outside of architecture. And I think I'm super interested in just where they all meet, whether they're um, actual humans, as in where the variety of different cultures, especially being in London, like how we all integrate together, um, how we all interact with each other, how we engage with each other, how, where we don't mix, what happens there, and on those lines, what happens, mm. and, and who sets the rules for those, those boundaries and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I find inspiration from a lot, a lot of places, <laughs> which is which has been super hard for COVID because where I haven't really been going out so much. I'm a big people watcher. That's like my main hobby in life. 
yeah. love it absolutely love it i spend a lot of um a lot of my days just daydreaming and staring at other people um so where that couldn't have happened this year it's been very uninspiring you understand how people interact with their surroundings you can design better for them Angeline, what about you? How, how's your inspiration coming along? Um, do you think COVID has restricted you? You said that your business has maybe suffered a little bit because of COVID. It has. Um, I wouldn't say it's um, impacted inspiration. I mean, I, I get my inspiration really from, from the clients that come my way um, and, and what inspires them. And that, that I use as, as a precedent to, to design anything. Um, yeah, COVID has really changed the way that we do everything um, and the nature of business. And it, it's it's been really interesting to kind of weather that storm, still kind of weathering it. I think it, it allows you to kind of look at your, yourself a lot. Like I was really conscious, I think, as a black designer going in, um, you know, pitching for like Swatch Group, the interiors for that. And, um, you know, I was the only kind of, black person and actually you realize actually you're a designer and and it isn't about color um but if it is you know use it to your advantage i use it to my advantage in bearded ladies in that i kind of target and use my color as a usp um so i go into um asian networks i tap into jewish networks we you know we are of a different socio um cultural class and everyone recognizes it so i i kind of place myself in that and i say do you know what i'm right there i'm the ethnic in the room as well and and that's kind of um produced some projects as well where i I ordinarily wouldn't have that opportunity so i kind of turned it on its head a little bit make that your strength as you said yeah yeah and people want to hear it um i have a mentor um who's called Ina Berent and she's actually a creative director and nothing to do with architecture but has pulled me into a completely different world um where they embrace um and they you know they 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 want to be challenged because there are there are companies out there that do want to engage you know they but they just don't know how to approach covid has kicked people in the bum a little bit because um so many uh, architectural practices, interior design practices, the whole industry really has had to approach everything this year in a completely new way and much more of a forward thinking way. And then combine that with all the Black Lives Matter things that happened earlier in the year. And it's almost like been this amazing catalyst for, for change. And where they were kind of able to sit back and say, oh, we don't need to do any of that stuff yet. And I feel like they can't say that anymore. Everybody has to do things differently. Um, My next question is, what kind of events do you like to attend? Um, I know that, Nana, you've recently kind of been doing a circuit and, and being maybe on the opposite side of the events in that you've been speaking a lot. Are there events that you particularly are attracted to speaking at? Yeah, um, I'd say perhaps I'll answer the first question about the kinds of events I like yeah. to go to because I think that fuels the kinds of events I like to participate in as well. Um, I, I'd say about myself as an architect, I am an architect that cares about making buildings in a way. Um, enjoy the kind of physical presence of architecture and what the kind of... Um, what the artifact actually says about us, our generation, our people, all of those things. So I like lectures that are really critical about kind of architecture and making architecture. A practitioner getting on stage and showing you five of their top projects. I can look at that on your website and I don't need to pay for a ticket for that. The lectures I really enjoy are the ones that start to kind of talk about um, larger issues about architecture and the the kind of interesting nuanced things that generate architecture. I once saw, when I was a student, I once saw Ellis Woodman present um, Noah's Ark as a kind of architectural artifact. And I found that really uh, fascinating. He was talking about this kind of idea of a building culture, about people of a time and their kind of 
how they built, how they lived. And I thought that was really interesting. I think one thing that the pandemic has done is really helped us question what kind of critiques in architecture get um, given light and given yeah. um, the foreground. And I think, you know, things like the Architecture Foundation's 100 Day Studio, I really enjoyed the talks that perhaps um, veered away from a kind of traditional uh, architectural sense. So we curated um, Architecture Foundation Takeover um, with NAW, um, the New Architecture Writers Programme. So there's five of us, there's Nasra, Iwa, Lois and Sean and myself. And we really wanted to do, put on a kind of takeover that just wasn't kind of centred on building critique, writing about buildings and the kind of traditional, I'm writing the building review. But actually we started to ask questions about, well, as a diverse group of writers, what is interesting to us about architectural practice and the practice of architectural criticism? What I, I attended the uh, New Architecture Writers Takeover of uh, Architecture Foundation. I actually wrote a review about it on um, mm -hmm. um, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> the one about 101 things I learned in architecture school. And, and honestly, that was so cool because uh, uh, the whole premise of it was taking the, the general understanding of that book, which we all probably use in our architecture student lives, and turning it completely on its head and and um and and just trying to get a different understanding of if you were to take that book by a different group of people how might they interpret it and i just thought that was such an amazing thing to do because it is really a seminal text it is something that can really form the foundation of uh, somebody's understanding of architecture we really enjoyed doing that one and there was a weird moment because we tweeted about it and then the author saw it and came yeah. to the event and we're like oh crap <laughs> but it was really it was really great and for us like you know I haven't I hadn't read the book in in years yeah. like I read it as a first year and rereading it again we we're like this is actually really useful advice all of it's very useful advice for us, we thought, what does that mean for a kind of new, more diverse and culturally richer um, yeah. kind of young architect or young aspiring architects? And for me, one of the things that really struck me was um, the page that gives the sizes of summer people and winter people, because that's quite loaded already. That's to yeah. say that architecture exists in this part of the world and these are the people that make it up. But I say summer, winter, and I ask the question, well, what about monsoon people? What about hamatan people? What about dry season people? The, you know, part of this thing of calling it architecture is to exclude certain people. So it's not like, you know, building culture is much more encompassing. People have been building since, the, you know, day one of the world. 100%, I completely agree and I think that's why I really enjoyed like the Architecture Foundation series. Um, Angeline, what kind of events uh, do you like to attend? And I, I, I want to kind of highlight here that you are a mother um, and I, I think that must be incredibly difficult for you to find the time to perhaps attend the events that you want to, um, but how, how do you manage it and, and how do you, what kind of events do you attend because of it? I try to avoid architecture um, events. Um, not, not, not out of, <laughs> but I just find that a lot of the industry tends to preach to itself. And actually, you know, your, your clients aren't there. So who's listening to you? You're just kind of preaching to your own. So I tend to go to events that are um, geared at other, other people. So I, I set like when I find clients, I, I go to a lot of property events and at property events, there's rarely any architects there. And I can't for the life of me understand why there aren't more architects in property events where there are clients and investors and people that want to build. Yeah. And, that, and not, you know, a Reba event, for example. Um, so I do a lot of that. But I also attend events such as Southwest by Southwest, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of aimed at marketing. I mean, it was in, in America. I was supposed to go this year, but obviously uh, COVID, COVID screwed that. Yep. Um, but I, I really... Um, I really find it interesting going to into other industries. You know, as as architects and as designers, we are armed with so much information. Sometimes we can't even process it. We don't realize how rich our education is and how much it is needed in other 
industries like marketing, like property and property. Um, you know, I, I did a, a talk last week um, with property developers about branding, branding a HMO, you know, and, and what that meant for them and having, um, you know, design manual and consistency in design and quality and all of these kind of things and, you know, how to do proper site analysis and all these kind of things came out and it was, it wasn't, you know, to architects. Yeah. So I think learned um, through architecture that you were then able to apply elsewhere. Yes, and we we as, as as design we need to start sharing that with the world and not just ourselves. So I really place myself there. As a mother, um, events events are difficult. Um, obviously, um, children need consistency. And one thing I find particularly with the architecture events is that um, as as with many events, you know, they tend to be in the evening around six o'clock when you kind of have to feed children and you know they're on one um they're on one wavelength mm -hmm. and one routine and i find that networking events are on another they're not really made or geared towards um you know family you know it's not structured around that yeah. um which means obviously i can't attend as much as possible although covid has kind of changed that up and it's kind of leveled the playing field a, a bit in that it's a lot easier tapping in on zoom so i can i actually um find i'm networking more um virtually than than obviously physically um i also find um particularly with architecture more than other industries that um a lot of the events are very closed and and price is, is a big thing. I mean, me running my own company, I'm very, very aware of disbursements and, and um, you know, networking uh, and even just upskilling, doing CPDs. It's very, very expensive, I find, through Reba. Um, often, often I just don't have the budget. We did a survey before um, I started Arkity and I, I kind of got a cross-section of the industry and one of the things was that you know some of the, the, the events are priced too high um, and another thing was that they just don't have the time physically that there is not enough time um, in the day there's not enough time given to them by bosses and, and it's not seen as a priority of something that should be given the time even though we are all expected to do our 20 hours a month or a year or whatever of CPDs and then when you can do it, there's a cost associated. And I'm not saying that everything should be free. Um, I do think COVID has helped with that, though, because a lot of things are being produced on Zoom. The, the opposite side of that, though, is then the, the people that are helping to put those events on aren't getting paid. So there needs to be a balance um, because people need remuneration for their time and their effort. Um, Melissa, what about you? Have, have you, you know had a different approach to the kind of events you've been attending because of COVID? Do you attend any events? Um, to be honest with you, even prior to COVID actually, I only go to events where I'm comfortable, where I know I'd be comfortable in physical form. Um, and that's not in predominantly white spaces. So anywhere where there's a mix of cultures, where people are talking about different things, different ideas, different concepts. Um, and a lot of the time as well, I'm quite interested where art meets architecture. Mm. I find those quite interesting. Um, just to be conceptual, because sometimes it's, it's, the world is too real. Yeah. <laughs> it's just nice to kind of delve into what people's passions are and what's in people's minds. But um, the last two events that I went to or participated in um, were probably some of the best ones that I've experienced. And one of them was um, Black Reconstruction Collective. Okay. Um, uh, an American collective, they're linked with... Um, Harvard University Graduate School um, and it was basically these group of um, practitioners, black practitioners in America, all of them produced a two-minute video about what they believe the black future to be in the spatial environment Yeah, and it was like a combination of some of the work that they were doing, collages, um, stuff about history and how it relates to um, what they want to see in the future, what currently is there. Um, they were so varied and they were so interesting and it was just so nice to see like people producing work not for monetary value, yeah. but it was, just, it was just people's ideas. So that was really good. I definitely recommend, um, I think there should just definitely be much more of that because I think even a lot of us like, thinking about Resolve right now, a lot of us, as much as we're doing work that we're interested in and in industries that we're interested in and, and working in the way that we, we'd like to, 
um, all of our work is reactive and it's for a client. I think that's one of the things that I have noticed uh, about our white counterparts is that um, <laughs> they're more free. They have a lot more freedom. <laughs> that that you took the words out of my mouth is, is that they have the freedom usually because they they've had um, a, a bit more of a help on the ladder to getting to where we are. And that's not uh, when I say we. I, I mean people from a, a particular social class of ethnic minority because there are people from other social classes of ethnic minority who may also have had um, a certain level of privilege but um, so yeah it is it's nice to see go to an event and just see black people be themselves and and uh, I attended the Sound Advice Awards a couple of days ago I don't know if you guys did as well but that was absolutely amazing to see because it was just black people in their element really you know celebrating having fun speaking the way that they wanted to speak yet still critiquing you know the industry in in a very real way and I think we do need more of that just something that authentically comes from us and is not reactionary uh, would be amazing and, and I think just to draw and, uh, Angeline's point in terms of um because you mentioned that uh, a lot of the times you don't go to architectural events because they're just for self-indulgent but um I think those when it comes to going to architectural events with just our peers it's for a different reason it's not necessarily for networking it's mm. it's, it's it's for the motivation it's for the confidence boost it's, it's for the catch-up and the the informal interactions that are going to help us to move forward yeah. um like you said where we can be like fully ourselves and where we can just relax and mm. and have a bit of a moan about the industry so that we can keep going but like the net in terms of networking for like clients and stuff obviously we know we're not yeah, each other <laughs> but I, I get what you're saying though because we don't we should be more when we are like talking a lot about like money and clients and stuff like that um we we should in theory we should be in those spaces to be able to to, to give them access but they're not comfortable and they're not for us no they're not they're not they're yeah, so many well. I had a builder this week, I was running a tender and the builder came in and was like, um, are you taking the notes? And I was oh. like, well, what do you mean I'm not taking the notes? Yeah. I'm hosting the meeting. <laughs> and you know, he almost fell off his chair. So I know, you know, I know, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, uh, but you've got to get used kind of um, being uncomfortable in uncomfortable spaces. And I guess I'm spoiled. So my mum's a judge mm. and, um, and she's very quickly, you know, in a, in a mainly white environment to just get comfy. I'm really enjoying this discussion. And I think one of the things that's really been revealed this summer, and I think we always knew it, um, but uh, it's very interesting to me that it takes a whole pandemic <laughs> um, for us to talk about race critically and, the, yeah. you know, the unfortunate murder of a man right on camera and him his life being so violently taken away that gets us to get to a point where architecture is even able to have a conversation about race and and all these things that we're talking about here for me are underpinned by a racialized profession one that is in its very essence started off as a kind of gentleman's profession a gentleman's hobby even so when we talk about money, well, if you are practicing architecture as a kind of gentlemanly hobby, you don't need to make money. <laughs> so yeah. why would that be important to you? Or if, um, if you come from a place where not, you know, you've never met an architect or don't, don't know anyone that works in the kind of construction industry, except for say a builder, then how do you even exist in these spaces that have been actively created to exclude you and your culture. And this year, what I've really realized is that actually we can't keep talking about race as a kind of ad additional thing, especially in architecture in the built environment. It is way too critical to the kind of profession and the way that it exists in the world, especially in London. Like, you know, you can't, you can't kind of claim to be working with communities if you don't understand the kind of essential part of the sorts of daily lives where you're asking you know how can I improve your actual existence and your everyday material circumstances rather yeah. than is this a nice brick or not like I don't care like if I was living in kind of destitution I don't care what yeah. brick you put there 
and I think all these all these things we're talking about about kind of attending events and you know being able to afford even events and actual payment all come down to kind of racialized I agree so much and I think it also feeds down to the clients I mean the types of clients that I've had um during COVID are very different and um, the level of education, especially when you've got an ethnic client, I'm not going to say just black, but there's mm. always difficulties and there's difficulties because of the stigma of architecture and they don't, you know, um, clients don't know how to behave, um, you know, uh, towards, you know, an architect because they've never used one before because, you know, the, the, it's almost like a class system. And if you're not in that class, then you don't know how yeah. to use an architect and what they're for and, you know, um and then i think it's it, it all stems from what you said um nana i think it, it it's it, it it just trickles right down i guess i i share some of your um the way that you, i suppose you um inhabit a space um angeline because i'd say i grew up fairly privileged um and i'm quite used to navigating these spaces what's really interesting for me is that i think that the clients we get are changing. There are, I, I, I see a kind of, um, you know, um, um, our generation of perhaps black and minority ethnic, um, first generation or second generation, being much more up, upwardly mobile, which yeah. means that the kinds of people that use architects is different and they have different ambitions. For me, that's really exciting because there's a kind of generation of newly, uh, wealthy shall we say or or newly upwardly mobile or aspirational who want architects that speak their language look yes. like them um understand where they're coming from and that's us <laughs> and i think that that's really it's exciting it's true but, but with that there's a level of education that we have to bring to them just to plug mm. the gap there is a gap and i've i've noticed it with the kind of clients that i've got um at the moment that there's a you know they they don't they know they want an architect but they don't quite know what a feasibility is that's so funny because i literally have i'm thinking about how i have to do that i've got a private client who mm. i know just has told me what he wants but i know it's kind of just like an off-the-shelf situation that he wants and i'm now having to think about ways to tell him all the other things i have to do before i get there and also try <laughs> and figure out how to get a new design in with that because I don't actually like what he's planned. He's planning. It's quite funny actually because essentially what he wants is a, a a Victorian house in Africa and I'm not I'm not having any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not having it at all. Um, part of what you're um, talking about there Melissa I think it's part of formerly colonized people, not um, perhaps seeing their own wealth and the things they have and their heritage. And part of, that's why like I, I do and practice the way I, I choose to, um, in that I think it's about changing kind of perceptions as well. Okay, so we've kind of covered, um, I think through our general conversation, we've, we've covered uh, access to the industry and access to diversity and, and diversifying uh, the knowledge that's available and maybe the reasons why um, and, and we've we've kind of also covered um, feelings of exclusion in, in the industry and perhaps why we may stay away from certain areas of the industry and, and why we should possibly be putting ourselves in un uncomfortable positions even though uh, I'll admit that that is not for everybody and, and not everybody has to do that. Um, so my next question is, what would you like to see more of in the future when it comes to events? I think, I think just coming from COVID online, I want to see a lot more of these black and brown events in person now. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were lacking a bit um, prior to COVID. And now that they know that they have an audience for them, maybe potentially that could have been the reason as to why they didn't exist in person. Um, but yeah, definitely seeing a lot of these um, alternative practice talks and, and black people, black and brown people coming together to support each other as well as network um, is definitely very much needed post-COVID. So very excited for it. It's I like as well that um, some of the black and brown things that, that I've attended 
have also just been people talking about things that they like or things that they've done and not necessarily talking about diversity or not necessarily mm -hmm. talking about um, a negative experience but actually being engaged um, for their expertise. I think that's super important and something that really holds dear to my heart um, in terms of um, engaging people's expertise and not necessarily the way they identify because yeah. I think it's it is quite frankly insulting to not do that. I think it, it, it kind of ties to um, a comment earlier about the kind of freedom that comes from perhaps a certain social class or um, uh, being white and that you are not burdened with the other, you know, with the other things that perhaps um, black and other minorities have to think about in terms of representing yourself and your whole race <laughs> in yeah. a way. You know, um, I completely agree with Melissa about um, those uh, the kinds of events and I'd love to see them in, in real life, in real spaces, because I think there's a kind of... Um, Apart from trauma, there's a lot of joy in blackness. And that's, one, that's why I love the Sound Advice um, event last week. And I, I, yeah, I say black because I, that's who I am. <laughs> I want to see myself in the future. And um, yeah, spaces of joy, to operate from a place of joy, not lack. Mm -hmm. um, we're not lacking in anything. You know, black people have the same expertise, the same training, and we should be being engaged with for our expertise, not necessarily just the kind of tick box exercise of diversity. Do you think we should ban um, in 2021, like any black people doing diversity talks? Yes. I'm actually down for this movement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I am so here for that. Doing the talk. I, I'm, I'm very... I'm very, um, so at the moment I'm actually writing an, um, an article on diversity and inclusion and I said to the editor, I said to the editor, the only way I'd write it is if, um, it, I'm, I'm not writing a kumbaya piece. If I am talking or writing about diversity, it's from a place of us. Also, I, I think we, we're not seen as professionals. We're not, even though we are professionals, we are trained exactly the same. I sat on a design clinic last week and the panel happened to be all black. Now that was completely um, by accident, but we had, we had a construction manager. Um, I was sat next to a senior planner who was black, surveyor who was black, builder who was black. So we, we, we were basically uh, in front of hundreds of people who had design issues, they were all investors. And they just shot questions to us and we gave professional feedback and they were very surprised with the, the level of professionalism coming from this panel. Um, this, I don't know, we just, I don't know, there's this thing that, that, you know, they just don't see it, even though we have the quality, we have the letters after our name, you know, they, they still don't see that. And, um, you know, I want to see, you know, that's what I want to see more. I want to see more, um, diversity on panels on a professional level giving professional advice not not advice about diversity or community-led initiatives no give technical advice yeah. you know that, that people can relate to and and um you know because if there's if there's like a community-led initiative um like a grassroots organization they they all get the black person involved because yeah. you must know you know and it's like actually i grew up in Hampstead. <laughs> But somehow, in a room on our panel, you're expected to know everything about Brixton or the kind of inner worlds of Brixton. It's like, I, but thank you for inviting me, but I don't know. <laughs> this is the thing that I find so incredible is that un lack of understanding about, like, we understand that a person who grew up in inner city London is not the same as a person who grew up in Manchester. We know that. You know, somebody who grew up in Lincolnshire, for example, mm. we know that that person, that person can have very different experiences. They're, gonna, they're mm. going to expect very different things and bring very different things to the table. But when it comes to black people, if you put the four of us, you know, walking into a room, people would naturally expect us to have a very similar background. And that's not the truth. Mm. And that's kind of another reason why all this whole uh, podcast has people from all different types of backgrounds, including mm. even within ourselves, within our blackness we all have different backgrounds because i think you can't 
um, understand the diversity that's necessary for these new events, this new wave of events that's coming through, until you really understand the people that are trying to attend them. But in some ways, I'm I'm quite tired of explaining that to yeah. white people. Um, you can figure that out yourselves. <laughs> you're not. No, you're not. It's obvious. You're you're not. Um, you're not without the knowledge. Go and find it. I'm sorry. I I really do. Th- I feel very strongly about the kind of explaining. I don't have to explain my existence. I think the conversations that are beginning to happen now, in my opinion, they're only just beginning. Mm-hmm um i have not seen anything like this year in the industry in the 11 years that i've been in it diversity um and specifically from a racial point of view is something that i think that conversation is is very young um and it's very new um and it's a conversation that they need to really have um and and understand the systems about it and how that affects other areas of the industry such as um people procuring contracts and and business structures and, and all of the, the kind of wider business aspects of architecture and then the fundamentals which is education um, networking you know connections that you make and how those things are all influenced but I personally don't think that this is a conversation that's been had for a very long time I think this is a, a new <laughs> thing brand it's, it's, it's 2020 new it it's 2020 new I, I think I've, <laughs> I've been asking um a lot of people this recently and if i can be so cheeky is to ask Mm. you guys um how do you how do we stop um how do we engage in the way that means we don't have to have another 2020 in five years in architecture because my fear is that this is still being perceived as a moment Mm-hmm. And that if it carries on being perceived as a moment, we will be having the same conversation in five years and then again in 10 and then again in 15. So how do we make 2020 a kind of decisive moment from which architecture is truly changed? Personally, you have to go to both ends of the scale. So you have to go to the very young, the people who are fledgling, uh, just entering the industry. And then you have to go to the other end and go to the really archaic you know, the, the people who are stubborn and they really don't want to change. And, and that's the two, if you can affect those two areas, then everything in between will naturally have a knock-on effect because all the people who are coming up will learn differently to the way we were taught. And all the people who are influenced by those dinosaurs that they call them, you know, who look to them for guidance and look to them for the traditions. If you can change those, a few, even just a few of those people's um you know their approach then i think that will make a big difference but what about the people practicing now because i hear that i i agree with both mm. but i hear that quite a lot and it's beginning to be slightly disconcerting to me when people say oh it's a problem in education i'm like mm, not really um well there is a problem but it's not the problem that is affecting architecture right now because the people i'm teaching will not be qualified architects for at least another five to seven years to six years so uh, are we saying that the profession has to wait on them to make any difference and even when they are you Mm. know qualified they'll still be pretty junior i'm just like that's not it i think we've got to recognize our route is different Mm. like my route to architecture i would would have loved to have that traditional route and find a practice and um you know and have the the nurturing but if you don't have that if you don't have that opportunity i also try to educate people that you can do it in an alternative way so for example i'm with bearded ladies i'm going through the qualifying checks so that i um can run apprenticeship schemes so you could do your part two and part three qualify under my practice just because i hire because i employ architects so you you don't have to go that that traditional route there are alternative ways but also i think we've got to encourage people to be a bit more entrepreneurial and, and get out there and 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 try and i'm technically a part one by paper you know um, but it didn't stop me you know and we've got to we've got to just just motivate people um you know to, to get out there don't you know don't wait for that part three <laughs> just from what you're saying just to add to what you're saying as well the the systems that we're taught at part three, um, Melissa, we went to the same university, so you might agree with me, but obviously they're based on 
what works and what has worked for many, many years. So all of those things that you were just saying about how to run a business, how to balance the books, how to look for new clients, how to do all that kind of stuff, it's based on the tried and tested way. So there's not going to be really much change there unless, like you said, you look for an alternative way to do it yourself. And that obviously takes time and it takes money and it takes um, patience. I think um, like encouraging like practitioners now to take more risks is is one thing that I would I would say is a is a big must because I think we always think if you go down the traditional route I'm going to do my thing that I'm really interested in on the side and eventually it will just come out of nothing that I'll be able to do the side thing as a full time thing when actually you need to, there has to be a point when you dedicate 100% of your time to what you're super passionate about. And yeah, that could mean reducing your salary or, you know, um, it normally is to do with money. So you normally have to save up a bit to be able to sustain yourself for a bit to be able to do that. But we think it's a gamble when it's just a risk um, and, a, and an investment as well. The more time you spend on other people's work is the less time you spend on the stuff that we're actually interested in mm. um, and that we want to do and how we want to contribute. And that could mm. be in a slightly different way from traditional practice. So I think like the, the connections and stuff that are being made right now in with the, the current practitioners that are like in our generation in terms of um, just starting out as either architects or just starting out in their practices, nurturing those relationships, making sure that, that we keep in contact constantly, making sure that we um, fully understand what this industry is about and making sure that opportunities are kind of passed around amongst us as well as Mm. um just encouraging each other to find outside of the box or or to go for the the slightly different opportunities not the ones that are uh are the quickest and easiest or the ones that are given to us so i think we just need to kind of branch out a bit because that's the only way we're going to grow <laughs> and we need to encourage each other together to be able to grow together and uh, i just think that there's as much as it is about education um I'm kind of less interested in the in the other end that you were talking about, Paris, in terms of changing the minds of of the older generation. I'm, I'm kind of yeah, I'm done with that. My thing is that they have a lot of influence, and if regardless of if we like it or not, they they do. The ones I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of like the the stalwarts, you know, the ones that have 200 strong practices and stuff, and uh, people but like we also have, we also have a huge amount of influence. We, um, we do, but they're they're paying salaries of hundreds of people thousands of people even and for example um lionheart kind of going into grimshaw and becoming the poet of residence there and and just changing his his approach is something that to me is so you know brand new it's so something so different to architecture it's not not ever really been done and um just his presence in in that space and then going to japan and working with kengo kuma and all those kind of stuff and it is such a different way um, of engaging with these people who have been in the industry for 40 years, 40, 50 years, um, and changing their mindset in, in, in an in a interesting way. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with the sense of like, you know, the, the dinosaur who doesn't care for black people. I don't care for you either. And I, I, <laughs> I don't want to engage with you. But the people who do engage with black people and, and have that kind of influence, um, should be engaged i think personally mm. i think they should be engaged but it's not your it's, i don't think that it's the job of those who um have suffered under the system to bring you to the table if you don't recognize that you should be at the table you're not yeah. worth a seat here so yeah so uh we've got a couple of minutes left so this is going to be a quick fire question um just a tip for overcoming these kind of obstacles that we've spoken about um with regards to access so just a short punchy sum it up in one one go a tip for uh the young black uh or minority ethnic um person who's in the profession who may not want to be in these spaces but perhaps should be or shouldn't be for whatever reason um angeline do you want to take it away yeah sure um I've only got three really quick points. I'd probably say, um, number one, prepare to be uncomfortable. Um, number two, um, walk the business card. Number three, memorize your specialism um, and let it roll off the tongue. If someone asks you what you do, 
be able to just say, I do this with confidence. And that alone will break down a barrier. They know exactly what you do, what you're about, and they get it straight away. That's it. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks. Melissa? Um, I'll probably just say um, knowing that you have more to offer than you probably know or think at the time. So even if you're in, like um, meeting somebody for the first time, and even if you're a student and you think, oh, I don't know what to say to this um, fully qualified senior architect, like you, you definitely have more to offer than just being a student. So just hold your head high and have confidence in the fact that maybe you're not there yet, but you'll, you'll see it soon. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think we all just need a little bit of confidence in ourselves because architecture is such a vast subject that you can easily feel a bit overwhelmed by everybody else's amazing, you know, their work and what they've done and what they've achieved. So remembering that you also have something to offer is, is definitely really important. Nana? Um, I'm not offering anything uh, new, but I am going to quote some something that I heard um, recently that was for me so profound. So the last um, uh, um, after party um, event for the love of power, they had um, Andre Anderson um, of Freedom and Balance um, as part of the panel. And he said something that I just thought was amazing. Um, and if that, that's the advice I'm gonna give, never assume what knowledge is for you or, and what isn't for you. Because I think that's something that we do a lot. We assume that this isn't for us. Mm. Everything's for us and we should, be more kind of bolder in yeah. seeking out knowledge that has been presented it's not for us I don't offer any really new nice. words just offer his very good ones <laughs> that's a nice nice way to kind of wrap it up and I think it um it adds to what Angeline was saying about putting yourself out there and, and uh making sure that you you know you put yourself in that uncomfortable position so if you do see an event that you want um just attend it and and you know, go out there and seek that knowledge and, and find that information and that inspiration. So uh, thank you guys. You know, this has been an amazing, absolutely amazing conversation. I've really loved it. And I feel like we could talk forever. This is <laughs> going on two, two and a bit hours now. So uh, it's been really, really lovely having the three of you. Thank you so much to Nana, Angeline and Melissa. Um, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Nana, Angelina and Melissa gave wide-ranging accounts of their diverse histories and interests and I hope that if nothing else you take away from this how deep and rich the black experience is and that the systems that currently exist within architecture and design constantly afford those with this experience an uphill battle that we do not want or need. To find out more about Melissa, her work with Brick by Brick, Resolve Collective and Black Females in Architecture, follow her on Instagram at Melly Haney, M-E-L-I-H-A-N-I. To find out about Nana's research and tutoring work with Studio 2.2, it's at biama.ofosu, B-I-A-M-A-H dot O-F-O-S-U. And Angeline, who doesn't post too much of her amazing work online, sadly, but if you want to contact her, she's available at bearded underscore ladies underscore. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode.